Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games, 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 games. And in today's episode, we're doing a classic deep dive of Challengers, a hot 2022 release nominated for the Kinderspieljahr as of the recording of this episode. Perhaps by the time this releases, or shortly thereafter, a winner of the Kinderspieljahrs, we'll see. And a game that I think embodies really impressive design. So I'm excited to delve into it. It's a a game that is one part auto battler, one part deck builder, one part tournament simulator, one part a couple other things that I'll talk about soon. But it's just a, a light gamery sort of party game that has really impressed me, has lots of novel ideas, and in general, I think we'll make a really great deep dive because it's not such a big game that we can't wrap our whole heads around it. In this conversation, we'll get to the bottom of a lot of the core mechanisms that make this novel design tick. We'll start with the deep dive in the episode, just really delve into the decisions, what this game offer, offers. And in the back half of the episode, we'll talk a little bit about strategy. Jake and I have played this game a ton, and though we don't always delve into strategy on the show, we know it's just naturally going to seep out, and we want to share it. This is kind of a competitive style game, so I think it makes sense in a conversation like this. So stick around for the last 15 minutes or so to get your strategy tips on how you can challenge the competition and challengers. Brendan, that's a really long way to say, new hotness, who dis? <laughs> Not us. We never cover new hotness. Oh, it's so but we exciting. Are today. Yeah, it's, it's really so exciting. Worth, I think part of that is we don't normally get swept up in the hype, but I will say we're swept up in the hype. Yeah, absolutely. And without further ado, Brennan, let's jump right into our ratings and short reviews of this game to give people a better idea of where we're coming from as we get into the deep dive discussion. I want you to go first. Okay. Challengers is raucous, delightful, and offers a deceptively deep decision space given its light presentation. One part deck builder, one part drafting game, and one part card game tournament simulator, and one part auto battler challengers is a rare design that succeeds in seeking inspiration broadly attempting to be many things all at once and it delivers by presenting something more than the sum of its parts with more than a hundred games of challengers played i'm entranced by the fluidity of optimal decisions and builds offered by the game accomplished by its high variance ethos and its wicked smart multimodal card designs that offer the player consistently consistently interesting strategic and tactical decisions. Challengers is one of those rare designs that maybe look back upon as the start of something new in the tabletop game space, and I can't wait to see what comes next. 9.5 out of 10. Ooh, wicked smart. <laughs> That's awesome. Wicked smart. <laughs> you just slipped that one in there. You thought you would slip it by me. Okay, uh, for me, I love Challengers and I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. Not something that I do lightly, but definitely something that I do do more often than most people in board games. I just think if I find come across a game that I really love, that's a beautiful distillation of a core idea uh, that I have trouble finding faults with the execution of um, then a 10 is warranted and I think in this case it is I agree with you Brendan wholeheartedly everything you said and especially want to highlight the point that I think that it's so rare that we encounter something that feels like a breath of fresh air in the hobby and also one that feels so ripe for continued exploration we saw that with Dominion and which kicked off a deck building craze I'm not certain 
nobody can be certain if there'll be a sort of auto builder board game phase that comes off of the heels of challengers success but i feel like there could be and i think that in the same way dominion still holds up well in the larger uh, category of deck builders as sort of like this core idea uh, that you know people are still loving and playing today and even el grande in these kind of area majority games uh, that followed it and is still holding up and beloved today i think challengers has that opportunity not only to sort of kick off something new, but also hold up over time with expansion content. We already know Challengers 2 is coming out. Uh, that makes it a classic. And it, you know, it's really early on. This game just released, but I think it, it has classic potential. So for me, 10 out of 10. Yeah, awesome. Well said, Jake. I have, so obviously I didn't give it a 10 out of 10. I'll save my, my nitpicks for the backside of the show. Uh, but I think right here, before we get into things completely, we just want to take a moment and say thank you to everyone who's been listening to Decision Space. The show's had an immense amount of growth lately, and we're so thankful to all of you who have told people about the show and also to our new listeners who have heard about the show from someone, maybe uh, from a friend at a board game group or maybe online on a forum uh, and taken the jump and listened. We're really thankful to have you here. If you enjoy Decision Space and you want to support the show in a small way, leaving a review wherever you've wherever you found and listened to it, whether that's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, uh, goes so far for us us in terms of the growth of the show, reaching more people, and allowing us to make even more interesting content. So I'd love to invite you to leave a quick review, five stars, uh, and we'd love to read it out on the show in the future if you have the time. Yeah, thanks, Brendan, for saying that. And we, Even though we've been having all this growth, uh, it hasn't necessarily translated to reviews because I don't think we had any new reviews over the past 30 days, which is, you know, sad, sad. It makes us sad and we want to feel happy and uh, leaving a re review, of course, would make us very happy. So apologize for that interlude. We'll give you just, you know, a few seconds here to, to type up a quick sentence of review and then we'll jump right into the game background. Okay, so Challengers is a game released in 2022 from One More Time Games. One More Time Games is notable because they also released a game we love called Rift Force. We did an episode of Rift on a deep, another deep dive on Rift Force. So now, as of this episode, we have officially covered all of the games One More Time Games has ever published. They're a new publisher, and we really enjoy what they're doing. I think uh, Rift Force and maybe Challengers as well was picked up by Z-Man for wider distribution. Um, but Challengers was designed by a pair of Austrian, as best I can tell, designers, Johannes Krenner and Marcus Slotwitzchek. Uh, Johannes has more than 10 design credits on BoardGameGeek, and Marcus has more than seven design credits on BoardGameGeek. Uh, so these are sort of workhorse designers who I think are, uh, I think it's Johannes's BoardGameGeek profile that says he's addicted to creating games, which is a, a great way to exist, a great way to have your brain. So I just want to shout them out. Um, I don't want to say they're not, they're clearly not newer designers, but in from what I can see, uh, Challengers is their most successful design yet. So that's really exciting for them. Check them out on BoardGameGeek. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, Challengers was nominated for the Kennerspiel BRs this year. Most notably also in this game background section, Jake, I think we'd be remiss not to have a little bit of a discussion around auto battlers. So for listeners who don't know what an auto battler is, very recently, as of, you know, in the last five years, within the video game genre of like RTSs, specifically in Dotas and MOBAs, there is this fan mod called Auto Chess. 
I like Which how was, in your explanation of this, you've already used like so many acronyms, like acronyms. RTS, Dota, okay, okay. MOBA. <laughs> Go back up. It's, it's, our, it's acronym <laughs> soup. Essentially, an auto battler is a game in which you make decisions and then you see the consequences of those decisions resolve automatically. So these started in computer game genres where players would make these drafting decisions around their teams and then watch the computer automatically resolve those battles. Then you'd make some more decisions around your team and send your units back into battle. Right. So you would pick your units and then watch them just get sent off to fight your opponent's units. The big distinction between that and the traditional real-time strategy video game would be in the real-time strategy video game, you actually can maneuver your units, units, right? You can like move them around, tell them to go over here, tell them to shoot over here. And this it's just they're running into the middle and fighting each other or, you know, in, in some other uh, resolution format, because this qu- quickly became more of like a card game type of vibe. Yeah. Interestingly, this mode of games caught on very fast. It started as a fan mod, was picked up as a as a real version or a, a publisher sort of uh, publisher celebrated release. Uh, and then iteratively, a lot of companies jumped in and said, hey, we could do that with our game and release their own versions. So games like uh, Auto Chess and then Storybook Brawl, Teamfight Tactics, Hearthstone Battlegrounds, all these games that came out really quickly. They had similar systems. Some key things that were tropes of the genre. You saw a lot of money that you had to spend. Sometimes that money would carry over and you'd use that money to buy new units. Sometimes it wouldn't. Challengers abstract that's away, abstracts that system away, which I think is a very good decision. And there's also opt- often a lot of times duplicate systems so this idea that the more units you get of a certain type of unit you would get some benefit so if you got maybe three of a certain unit they'd all combine into a super unit so those are some of the sort of cornerstone aspects of these auto battlers and we mentioned that because challengers is very clearly inspired by the auto battler genre it's trying to take what's been the sort of template that's been set and adapt it to tabletop games and i think it does so incredibly admirably it makes a lot of smart decisions to sort of take the best of board games and the best of the genre and mash them up into something pretty new yeah it's something pretty new and also something very familiar in challengers which i think is some of the magic in it because if you're a fan of these auto chess genre of video game you're gonna see that right away you know it's not this is not some great insight that we're coming up with but even if you've never played an auto battler and this is the first time you've heard about that term at all the way that the challengers abstracts the simulation of the fight into this card game is literally the card game of war you're just taking turns flipping cards off the top of your deck and resolving them uh almost the exact same way that you do in in the war card game the famous flipping card game of no decisions at all that I played a ton as a kid. So there's something immediately familiar about that uh, as sort of like the operating mode of this fight. Yeah, and I will say there's a few more decisions tucked in there than war and some interesting twists on war that give the game uh, some variability that keep all of the auto resolutions exciting, which is another feature of what I think makes auto battlers compelling is they're fun to watch. It's fun to watch your team resolve in battle. And I think challengers has a bit of that as well. Totally. Well, let's jump into your separately recorded rules overview uh, to help people understand a little better what we're talking about. And we'll meet you back on the other side for our deep dive discussion. (laughs) 
Challengers is a light, card-driven game for 1-8 to eight players that feels like a gamery party game and takes around half an hour to 45 minutes to play. The entire game is structured in the style of a round-robin tournament, in which players do a little card drafting, battle an assigned opponent, draft some additional cards and hone their decks, battle another opponent, and so on for 7 matches. All of this culminates with an exciting finals for the two highest placing players. During the game's drafting phase, players are simultaneously dealt cards from one of three decks of increasing power level, depending on the point in the game. Players then add cards to their deck, make a decision to remove cards if they wish, and then battle an opponent. During the battle resolution phase, players shuffle up their decks and reveal cards at random from the top. The first player to play takes a flag, denoting that their card has to be beaten by the opponent. To do so, the opponent then reveals cards from the top of their deck until the cumulative power of those cards is greater than or equal to the opponent's card holding the flag, at which point their last card played claims the flag itself. Once a card loses the flag, it's moved to the player's bench, and each bench has slots for six cards, but cards of the same type are stacked, meaning duplicates are highly beneficial in challengers. A player wins a match if they're the last one to be holding the flag when their opponent's deck runs out, or if the opponent's bench is full, an additional card would need to be added to it, meaning they ran out of spots on their bench. The winner of one of these matches takes a trophy which provides a variable amount of victory points based on the round with the points awarded scaling up as the game goes on. Mostly these battles are resolved procedurally in a minute or two, but a few cards allow for simple but impactful decisions mid-battle. The lion's share of impactful decisions, however, in challengers come during the drafting phase where players have to carefully search for synergistic combos to carry them to the finals. The last match played between those two highest placing players throughout the whole tournament. The winner of that match is then crowned the champion. Thanks so much for that rules overview. It's time. We're going to go deep on challengers. And I think we mentioned at the top of this episode that we've been playing this game a lot, primarily on Board Game Arena. We first played it together at Geekway and had a total blast. I've since played it once uh, again in person at a game night, but all my other plays have been online and I've played this game 93 times so far. So that's a lot of plays for me and, and yourself. Yeah, over 100. So between us, we have over 200 plays of challengers. So lots of experience with this one. And let's talk our talk a little bit because we've been doing pretty good playing online as well. Uh, and I bring that up because normally when we cover these shows in our deep dive format, we try and do our best to play it a few times and begin to wrap our heads around this game. But with Challengers being so new and us kind of gravitating towards it right away, we've sort of been at the forefront of it. So I think both of us have been in the top 20 players on Board Game Arena. Brendan, you made it to the top 10 last night briefly. And yeah, yeah, well, top 20 again last night, but okay. I've been top 10 previously. Yeah. And we have two uh, two other players uh, in our Discord, Watno and Carcassonne Hater, who have been ranked top one, number one on this game. So we've been really kind of using our Discord as a little brain trust uh, to really try and get a hold of some of the strategies and understanding what's going on underneath the hood of this game even more than we're normally able to do. So I just wanted to highlight that because I just think it's really cool. Yeah, and I, hopefully that informs some of where we're coming at in this discussion about the game. But we're going to start like any classic deep dive episode and characterize the decision space of challengers 
overall. So one thing we always like to start with is size and depth. Jake, this is a really interesting question for a game like Challengers because it presents itself as being a very simple game. And in a lot of ways, it is. There's around seven key drafting points in the game. Uh, that's not a ton of decisions that you get to make, but you're typically presented with a lot of options. You're dealt a hand of five cards. You're going to pick two usually, sometimes one. Uh, and then you can also make the decision to redraw those cards or draft a card and redraw. So the number of options means that the agency within those relatively few decisions feels pretty pretty high uh i find that the value judgments around when to throw a hand back really matter and then also there's strategic decisions once you get a sense for the card pools and the the sets and how the different uh sets overlap really grow the first few times you play the game it can almost feel like oh this is really cool i had so much fun it was really energetic but is there really that much there and the more I've played, the more I feel, yes, there's a lot there. There's a lot of considerations to make when making a decision in Challengers. So while it's not the most massive decision space overall in terms of depth, it's deep enough to keep me engaged and interested and excited about making these relatively simple decisions. Yeah, well said. I think that Challengers is a classic high skill ceiling, low skill floor game. Uh, and I think that those games are probably more often than not going to be games that have a small decision space, a really manageable number of choices uh, and kind of a specific set of choices and considerations when you're making those. Uh, but then those choices turn out to be much deeper than they appear at first blush. For me, I think it's an interesting question. It's a really interesting case study for this, but I think it's quite clearly a small decision space game with a tremendous amount of depth to those decisions. Yeah. Yep. And then we always like to talk about the type. So do the decisions grow out th through the course of the game? Are they waxing? Do they shrink over the course of the game? Are they waning? Are things sort of more static than that? And I think with the case of Challengers, this is a drafting style game which ultimately means for me that this is a waning decision space game, if only because strategically early on, you're trying to stay flexible and leave options open for yourself. So you're trying to make, you all start with the same base deck and you're trying to make early decisions typically to keep your options open as much as possible. By the midpoint, you're, you're hopefully narrowing in on a deck sort of archetype that you're aimed towards. And by late game, there's, there's a few things that you might do to shift what's there uh, in terms of your deck. And you can luck into really strong powerful pairs in the late game that can jump into your deck but for the most part the number of viable builds has sort of shifted and waned down especially in the mid game actually in the late game there's lots that you can add to your deck typically because the cards are just so strong that you're getting that if you get one or two if you get a pair or if you get a really strong single card you can usually find room for it but overall I think there's a, a waning feel to this game, especially when you've played it enough that you can appreciate when certain the card pool of certain cards has really shrunk and you need to pursue other options. I agree with you that it is a waning game overall, but it is, I think because the decision space is small, the wane, the amount of in which it can wane is much smaller than mm. a waning decision space game with a bigger decision space if that makes yeah. sense i think what i'm trying to say is like yes it's waning but traditionally when we think of a waning game i might think of a game that starts out with like a lot of different choices uh and then over the course of the game it goes down to none where challengers it feels like a game where you start off with very few choices and then it 
wanes down to fewer, but still some choice, right? Yeah. Like the whole thing is sort of dampened to make it, it feel like a more like tightly compact type of waning than we typically see. And I almost might have just convinced myself that it's actually dynamic too, Jake, because sometimes you kind of have that waning structure where there's no chance you're going to pivot to a new deck in the mid to late game. But other times, if you don't bring something together by the time you're in deck B, really in the mid game, you can end up completely pivoting. And other times you'll end up going into deck C, picking one card and realize you can totally shift your strategy, take out a whole, maybe you have a a cut turn, a decision point where you've added cards to your deck and you're going to cut some cards and you cut, say, six cards, eight cards and really shift the identity of your deck. So I think there's lots of different ways in which challengers can play out that make it feel pretty dynamic. Yeah. Okay. You've convinced me. Yeah. Okay. I I think so. I think so. Okay. But I still think what I said about it feeling like the walls of like a muted version of that is true. I think so too, especially the limited nature of how many cards you actually get to add each time. Though I will say one of the things that I love most about challengers is given the relatively short length of the game, your deck can transform dramatically. And I I just want to highlight that that's a fun thing about this game. Let's talk about clarity, Jake. Mm, This is where things get really tricky for me because I think the better I get at this game, the more I'm, I feel like unsure at certain points, things Mm. that once seemed like, okay, this is kind of an obvious pick here, you know, okay, let me give it an example. Early on in playing challengers, we sort of developed a heuristic as a little discord community that you, if in your first pack, you get a pair, you just always want to take that. Slam the pair. Slam the pair. And now that I've played it more and I'm realizing that, okay, not all of the level A cards are created equal, that there there are times when, oh, actually, I want to go for one of these cards like Vendor or AI, which are notably above the regular power level of other cards in that set. And then for a while, I was like, okay, so I slammed these. And now as you know other people the larger community has started to realize that these cards are really strong and everybody's trying to take them my opportunity of doubling up on those later on is less likely than it was at one point in the meta and now i'm kind of back to like oh maybe i just take this pair (laughs) right uh and now i feel like there are the the decision making there is very nuanced on what the pair is that you're looking at if any uh, what? How many players are in the lobby with you? And and that's just like the first decision point in the game. And I think that same type of logic is kind of carried throughout to ultimately create a decision space that is kind of polarized. It's either a slam dunk where it's like, I've already got a couple of these cards. I'm just taking more or the opposite, right? Or it's like, okay, there's a lot of different ways I could go with this cut decision or this card selection decision. And I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. So it's there's no no way around the fact that Challengers is a high variance game, and it's designed to be that. There's lots of effects that have really the potential to be very swingy, uh, and the nature of the structure of the game over all with the way the draft works adds a lot of variability to the game the power of pairs means that you can have or duplicates in general a really high upside to certain deck types if they come together uh, so all of these things combine to mean that you you're presented with decisions where if things go your way could be incredible but if they don't if other people jump into that could be quite terrible or if the cards just don't go your way so it feels pretty uncertain but with that said just like a lot of drafting games a lot of high variance games so much of the fun is tactically navigating that storm as you shift through pack after pack 
finding the optimal path through it. And you can absolutely find optimal paths. Also, Jake, just to comment on what you just said. Yeah, if I open a pack of that's two pigs and a vendor and an AI, so a pair of pigs is my choice or a vendor AI and say it's like a movie star. I'm, p- I'm taking the vendor AI. I don't need the pair of pigs. I can pick up a pair of threes some other time. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. So I think the thing to really emphasize and characterize the decision space overall that I just want to say one more time is that, you know, even the the auto resolution is mostly automated. And sometimes you have impactful decisions there that you get better at making. You get better at understanding certain other players decks and making drafting decisions around them. And then within game to game, thinking through the probability of the way certain cards work. Maybe you want to reorder cards in a specific way and understanding when and why you might reorder certain cards. There's a little room to improve your skill there, but not a ton. And I think that one thing that I want to emphasize is that your decisions feel really impactful and you're given the opportunity to strategically pivot pretty significantly in challengers in a way that it can be difficult in longer games, more uh, sort of structured classic heroes to strategically pivot mid game. So if you like games where you can pursue a strategy, see it's not working, swerve the car and head down a different path and find a new one that's the correct one, challengers is probably the game for you. If that sounds like something you're not interested in, maybe pass on this one because that's a huge part of the appeal and fun here. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and I think those are the most fun games that I have of challenges yeah. too, is when I start out pursuing one thing, or maybe I'm not pursuing anything because, you know, I'm not getting AIs, I'm not getting vendors, I'm not getting any pairs at all, yeah. right? I got a hodgepodge of stuff. And so I decide, okay, I'm going to start, you know, hunting for something new in, in the B set earlier than you normally would, right? Taking a single B over two A's. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, I can start making these things work or maybe to transition into our next topic you know i lose the first four matches but all that time i've been building up a strong core deck that allows me to to win round five six and seven and just sneak into the championship match i mean those games are talk about getting a whole story a whole narrative in your play i think challengers is so great and energetic at creating that story arc yeah so there's really two core mechanisms that shape the entire decision space the first one is is that the because the game is structured as a tournament and the winner of any given round gets a trophy which is a variable amount of victory points for winning a match um that but the variable amount of points you get grows over the course of the game and grows quite significantly so if you win match one you maybe get two points but if you win match seven you get 10 so that means that it's okay to lose the first few matches so long as you're building towards that final the last few matches and then the key thing is even if you get to the finals the two players who have the most victory points by the end of round seven, they go play in a final match and the winner of that match wins. So you could go into the finals with a deck that's slightly weaker than your opponent, maybe, uh, or you didn't get as many wins overall, but you snuck into the finals and your deck came out just strong enough. You still have to win that last match to win. And I think that puts this focus on the game towards the end of the game in a way that's really refreshing because it allows you to take risks early on, knowing that you can build and you have wiggle room around your wins and losses. Right. Yeah. It's there's also been some discussion, you know, in our brain trust about <laughs> maybe you don't even want to win the first match because the game has a mechanism to determine the start player based on whoever has the highest numbered trophy. Mm-hmm. So per, so early 
early on in the game going first is particularly devastating because you're putting out your card first and that card's power is not contributing to defeating any of your opponent's cards. So all of their card's power is working in their favor in the game and whatever you've put out there is not. So early on in the game, we just don't have that many cards. Going first can really just sink you immediately. So losing the first two matches maybe means you get to go first in round three and four where you're getting a lot more points. Yep, totally. And then the other thing that really shapes the decision space, the core mechanism that's so brilliant is the bench system. So there's this idea in challengers, right? I talked about in the the overview that you each have room for six card types on your bench. And one of the ways that you can win is you force your opponent to put a card in their bench when the six slots on their bench are full and then there's nowhere else for the cards to go. But if a card would go to the bench and you already have a card of that type, you stack it on top. So it's taking that auto battler mechanism of duplication and making it the sort of like emergent game system that is just it works so well because what it means is is that the decision around how many cards you should have in your deck is is fuzzy and the probabilities are fun to try to learn and explore if i have seven single cards i'm going to play all seven single cards because there's no chance that i wouldn't get to flip that seventh card in attacking before it goes to the bench so it's all value but once i start getting some duplicate sets which are good because i'll get more power more bang for my buck in terms of filling up my bench all of a sudden maybe duplicates sh- go on top of each other because they go on top of each other maybe things shift back towards oh i just want to run six cards but jake the more i've been playing the more early game i'm sort of like well actually the way i can stay the most open completely is to maybe lose some early rounds but hold on to even more cards so lately i've been playing eight nine card decks in the early rounds just to keep as many options open going into decks b going into deck b in the mid game and those decisions feel really rewarding and interesting and you can sneak wins because it's a high variance game so trying to figure out exactly what your deck in your position wants to do at any given point in the game ends up being a really rewarding decision that the more you practice the better you get at because you're dealing with these big fuzzy probabilities that are impossible to solve and interesting in part because of the way that bench system works and in part because of the way the deck the the battle resolution system works where it only matters what the last card your opponent hit your flag holder with because that becomes the starting card that they hold with which has all sorts of like fun on the edge of the horizon of your brain consequences that are like an interesting puzzle there's all kinds of really really interesting fuzzy decisions and i agree at the you're talking mostly about building your deck early on and keeping yourself open but i find myself confounded very often going into round seven or even before the championship Mm. about keeping just one extra card and then that decision becomes all about how good is the core of my deck right yeah i can play seven unique cards and that's going to create the highest possible ceiling for my deck because if i hit one of these three last right that's just extra value but it also dramatically lowers the floor of how bad your deck could be because if you just hit all your unique cards in the first three you might only get through two-thirds of your deck before you get benched out uh and then the question becomes both how risk tolerant are you and like what do you know about your opponent's deck right and what have you can you evaluate your deck because if you could win with six unique cards then that is the correct play. Uh, but I had a game earlier in our decision space tournament right now where I won the first seven rounds of our game and I was super confident going in. So I cut uh, uh, 
my seventh unique, which was Prince, which is a card that's even less likely to go into your exhaust pile. Because I was like, my deck is so good. It doesn't even matter. I don't want to give myself the small chance of losing. And, and then, of course, I lost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's wild. So, Jake, you said something really interesting that I want to pause on for a minute. Because we've been talking a lot about the sort of like mechanical decisions within the game, which is only natural for our show. But you said, well, it depends on how much you know about your opponent's deck. And when we played Challengers in person, one thing that I loved was that if you finish early or even just playing at the table, you know, you're all going to your little separate lanes where you're going to have your matches. You can kind of look at what the people to the left of you are playing to the right. If you finish early, there's the potential you could even do what's called scouting. So scouting is something that I think is uh, a very, uh, what's it called, Jake? What is the word I'm looking for? People fall on, it's like diametrically opposing opinions, right? It's divisive. divisive. So either okay. people are sort of like, scouting is great. It's a, a good part of these games. And some people are like, are you talking about like in allowed. the context of like Magic the Gathering tournaments? Exactly. Yeah. And what scouting means is if you finish your match, you go and look at the decks that your opponents are playing potentially so you can make more informed decisions in the future. And challengers actually thematic integrates this into the game because you can look at what cards other people are playing and have a sense for not only the matchups you're going against but also what cards are left in the card pool which could affect your drafting decisions in future turns so yeah what do you think yeah i think i mean it's playing online it's i think obviously a part of the game and a yeah, big yeah. part of it because you can just quickly scroll down and see what other people are are doing and if you're not paying attention to other people's deck list then you are just playing with a blindfold on that other people are I, I promise you not choosing to blindfold themselves as well uh, so a really good example of how this plays out would be if you've got the vendor deck so the vendor deck is basically based around an a level card vendor that powers up all your yellow cards so if you have two vendors already getting a third vendor is going to make your deck significantly stronger because it's going to power up all your synergies um so that might make you want to dip back into the A cards when instead you could choose to pick a single B card or the round after that, you could either choose to draw two more A cards or two more B cards. And when if you're looking at all the decks and both of the vendors are still available, right? They're still in that uh, draw deck then going back for is almost certainly the right decision. But if there's a one, if there's one other, there's, so we know there's four of each card unless it specifically says otherwise. But if one of the vendors is already in somebody else's deck or God forbid, both of them are in somebody else's deck and you Get out of are going back to the A deck looking for more vendors, don't know what to tell you, bud. It's not going to happen for you. And so, and this is a really interesting thing about this game because on decision space in the past, we've talked about sometimes games want to obfuscate their probabilities and sometimes they want to make them clear and we tend to prefer games that make them clear Definitely. because you can make informed decisions and i think challengers handles this really brilliantly because like jake said you can just assume that every card in the game has four copies in the deck that it comes in unless it says otherwise and when it does that it just says rare and the number that are there or common and the number that are there so for example ai a card that we've been talking about says rare three x on it so you know oh there's just three copies of this card there's also skeletons which is kind of a it's not the best card uh that you could open in in decade but there's five it's not copies. the best card if you're picking them but it can be a really strong card if you've got something else doing the work for you it is that and stupid saucer <laughs> it exactly and it can set up teenagers we'll, we'll talk maybe we'll get into that a little bit later on but the point is 
there's a it challengers is interesting because it presents you can kind of like the further you stick your head into the cave of challengers the more you can see and the further you can go like it's very there's a lot of room to bring in information and filter that in terms of making informed decisions but early on because it is a high variance game you don't really need to do that so what i'm trying to get at is the learning in this curve in this game is very gentle but rewarding and i really appreciate that for a game that's trying to be accessible yeah the skill ceiling is so high you can definitely improve your chances of doing well but you'll never be able to improve your chances to a point that you can't lose to somebody playing for the first time definitely very much like poker or magic the gathering uh you know the best players in the world right are going to be winning you know some probably somewhere around 50 or 60 percent of their matches uh star realms which we covered on the show where it's like 60 percent the best players in the world win 60 or so percent of the time yeah yeah and and that's exactly where you would want it to be because that means that if you want to go deep like we clearly have and have really enjoyed doing it's there for you but challengers does not ask you to do that to enjoy the game yeah and that is so important because this you know we've been talking about a lot we haven't really mentioned the fact that this is essentially a light filler plus slash like party game that you could truly play with anyone yeah we're tryhards Uh. (laughs) okay but let's talk about drafting decisions because i think this is another area Okay. anyway more tryhard stuff yeah more tryhard stuff so this is a brilliant brilliant system in the game so we've kind of been hinting at it and i talked about it just a little bit in the overview but there's three decks of cards and challengers there's the a deck the b deck and the c deck and then each player also starts with a, a base set of cards that's sort of your starting deck uh, so at the start of the game and there's seven rounds in challengers right so at the start of the game everyone just draws two cards from the a deck in round two everyone draws two cards from the a deck but in round three the player is given a, a choice you get to make a decision around drafting you can draft from deck a and take two cards from you'll, you'll be dealt five cards from the a deck you can pick two of those or you'll be dealt five cards from the b deck and you can pick one of those then in round four you get another decision you can draft two cards from the a deck or two cards from the B deck. And then in round five, no more decisions. You just get two cards from the B deck. Round six, another decision. Do you want two cards from the B deck or one card from the C deck? And then finally, everyone gets dealt five Cs and you pick two of those C deck cards to to add to your deck or maybe just not add at all and cut them. This system is another thing that adds so much skill ceiling to the game and also makes for some of the most rewarding strategic decisions in a game that I've played because it's all tied into these different archetypes of decks that you're chasing and cards you might want to see and pushing for duplicates that will make your deck stronger. So it's that good sort of synergistic design that's accomplishing multiple things, works well with that bench system and the duplicate system that works there and allows you to make interesting informed decisions and have high player agency. More and more, Jake, my favorite decisions and challengers aren't even my drafting decisions. It's my decisions around what deck to draw from well said i think the drafting decision maybe is like the third most interesting decision (laughs) which is crazy because in there's only three possible things that you're deciding this game what deck to draw from what cards to draft and what to cut from your deck and they're all just like so thrilling you know they just really are but yeah i agree it if it also feels like a perfect example of like that really really small decision space right it's literally yet one or two do you want option one 
or do you want option two? But there's a tremendous amount of like learning and strategy and tactics that all are baked into that decision if you want it. Or if you're new to the game, you could just say, I'll just take the better cards. Thank you very much. And you'll do fine. Yeah. And okay, I want to talk about why I think this is so brilliant too, though, Jake, because I've played a lot of other auto battlers. I've spent maybe 200 hours playing Storybook Brawl, a game that I really admire. I think it makes a lot of interesting decisions. Uh, It's another game. A lot of these auto battlers escalate as the game goes on, which is a smart design decision, right? You're getting more interesting, more powerful uh, cards as the game goes on. So you get a nice dopamine hit when that happens. But what sometimes happens in in those games and what could happen is storybook brawl is the early cards are so poor that there's not a lot of incentive to take earlier cards because you know that the late game cards are going to be so relevant but in challengers because of the way that the the system around duplicates work and the way that cards stack in the length of the game you can sometimes have cards that you draft for out of deck a that you end up building your entire strategy around and if you get enough of them you can ride them all the way to the champion seat uh, so it might make sense to make that funky decision where in the end of round four, you're drafting more A's rather than taking two B's, just looking for duplicates to complete this core strategy. Because some strategies sort of start in one deck and maybe have a little support in the later decks, but you need the core pieces from the earlier decks. Um, whereas other decks start in later, other strategies really blossom in the mid and late game. So those might reward pivoting early to the to deck b where you have that choice in round three between deck a and deck b if nothing really came together for you in the first two packs maybe you say okay i'm going to get an early start on deck b and hope that i can get a good starting point a step up and i'll pivot into the late game and i think making judgment calls around where you sit within the lobby around what to do it's just mm, so fun never the same decision always a tough decision and always interesting yes to everything you said and it's nice for newer players too because i think it can be like you could have really simple heuristics to sort of guide you through all those decisions and not really need to worry about it like the two a's versus two b's that's probably 90 to 95 percent of the time you're taking two b's there right it's a pretty specific niche which is great do you agree with that like like 90 percent two b's i think the the decision to pick two a's or two b's almost only exists in the game jake to support one strategy which is the makeup artist movie star one sort of one tribal strategy and when i say tribal here it's a sort of term from magic the gathering oh yeah we're not supposed to say that anymore are we not oh no what should i say term uh Uh, you're supposed to say i don't know affinity or affinity okay great this one affinity sort of setup where you're trying to get lots of ones in your deck that all support each other and you're going to stick with the newcomer cards in your deck and a lot of the one power cards are all in that starting deck so you're just that's one of the only times you'd make that decision yeah. but i love that the game has room for it there are a few other times that i i have and successfully gone on to win the it gives tournament. me a stomach ache it's just like gross it's so, so it's viable it's backwards. totally viable <laughs> Uh, I think, I mean, I've done it with like a deck that was like vendors and AIs and stable boys. I had yeah. like two of each of them. I was fine, like, fine, okay, fine. like, let's go. But, <laughs> but you give are, me more, give me more. You're hoping. That's yeah. like a, it's kind of a Hail Mary. It's high you can risk. Whiff. You can whiff yeah. for sure. And then the other decision points, I think like two A's versus one B is probably like a 75% you go for the more cards. And two I think B's, that, one C. I think 75% of the time you go for two the B's. B's. You know, but because you, you generally want more cards, but pairs of C's are so good. Yeah, so I mean, I agree. I agree. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, do you think do you think I'm off on that one? No, I think you're right on all of this. I just okay. I'm, so the, I'm putting that out there to say like like the it's so fun finding the opportunities to yeah. go against the common heuristic and hitting, and it works out, and you feel mad smart. You feel wicked smart when you do it. <laughs> uh, but but if you don't want to fuss with all that and you just want to like have fun playing the game, you can, and that's so needed for yep. again kind of a light gateway party game that some people are going to take way too seriously on board game arena and this one thing that i l- love covering lighter games on the show about because that illustrates a really interesting consequence around heuristics and decisions in games right so you have these decision points where 75 percent of the time you should make one decision but 25 percent of the time or so the other decision is right maybe 10 percent of the time that's how you make a rewarding decision space right and that's how you make a fun game to play because most of the time you can kind of autopilot that decision but when you get to that key decision point where it's a judgment call and it's tough maybe around 25 percent of the time is right so that's if you're designing a game that's something that's good to think about is how how often should you break away from a heuristic branch and go the other direction in your game also for clarity side of things too the variability in this game is so crazy that it takes a lot of plays to understand am i making the right decision here because you can absolutely make the right decision and then you just whiff big time and then you're like well i guess i should always just be taking two two b's over two a's every single time until you play way more and start realizing okay like i actually hit it there i and it was definitely right and now i feel like i'm learning something but you're not the game's feedback is not going to be crystal clear super direct yep in high variance games you have to accept that you will make the right decisions sometimes and not be rewarded for them okay so the final system that we really need to touch on is the battle resolution system right that war type system claiming the flag when you claim the flag all the cards stack up okay not a lot of interesting decisions here so maybe on the show it's not gonna be somewhere we focus but there's brilliant design decisions here. It's fast, which is a huge bonus when you need everyone to stay synced up because of the superstructure of there being a tournament and wanting the rounds to be in pace. You don't want too much variance and you want it to move quickly so everyone can stay synced within the tournament and the rounds can fire uh, fairly reasonably. There are also just enough meaningful decisions that it stays fun. There's no computer here to automate what's going on. And because humans are doing it, uh, like it would if it was doing what sort of the computer games expired. If humans are doing it you you want a reason for them to be flipping cards beyond like okay let's just resolve this and kind of like mind-numbing and i think the the amount of seasoning the designers have added here is just enough to to keep it fun when you're playing because you get to make interesting uh deck efficiency decisions typically oftentimes these decisions are cards like juggler that say look at the top three cards of your deck and reorder them in any order or cards like sailor that say look at your entire deck and put one at the bottom oh and also you don't have to shuffle your deck boom amazing yeah, i was just saying that is a genius decision because talk about something that has like a very a, a big variety on different times somebody's gonna shuffle it like a couple of quick shuffles somebody's gonna pile shuffle it every single yep. time somebody's gonna shuffle 20 shuffles you know so just like no we're not doing any shuffling Don't at all shuffle your deck. it's probably yeah. one of the smartest design decisions for pace of play ever and here it doesn't matter because you're you know you're not making a decision about what's going to come next anyway and it's so fun because you just get to like make these decisions that in many other games would just be mind-bogglingly broken but here are just make for strong interesting cards that are work well within the system 
Um, I like this shake. I will say there are enough decisions here that I have punted many times. My yes. games oh, away. <laughs> you can mess up the sequencing for sure. Also, the more I play, the more fun I have trying to figure out what cards to sequence next when I'm playing one of those juggler decks where I sort of look at, okay, what cards have are on the opponent's bench? What is likely to flip in their deck? Yeah. And how can I best stack my deck to probably combat it as efficiently as possible? Uh, they get deeper. It's very similar to like the which deck do I draw from question where it's almost always really obvious, but there are like a few opportunities for, to outplay your opponent here. If you're really paying attention and onto something and, and people have posted, you know, specific ones in our uh, discord brain trust, which of course everyone's welcome to, if you want to read through all the discussion we've had, maybe you stack your deck in a way that's like actually worse so so that another one of the cards is able to trigger there's a ufo card that helps you add random cards to the bottom of your deck that you often want to trigger as much as possible so an opportunity came up for aurora friend of the show where she was able to stack her deck using the reveal cards in such a way that she wouldn't win the match outright before the ufo card came up and i mean that's you know really smart i think this also goes along with the theme that challenges is a game of inches and a lot of what we're talking about are trying to find marginal efficiencies that really increase your chances overall of having a shot at that champion match and increase your chance overall once you get there winning it and i think that's compelling and fun this kind of reminds me of like all the way back to our like magic the gathering episode where like high high level magic gathering or poker is about like the marginal efficiencies right it's like what is my sequence here to take my chance of winning this match from 1% to 3%. And in most cases, I'm still just going to lose. But, you know, just finding like the small, you know, finding your outs and playing them to your best ability. Like that's the type of efficiency we're talking about here. And challengers is cool too, Jake, because it often you're offered the choice of, do you want to play the safe strategy? Do you want to just take uh, some vanilla cards that will offer good value and consistency? When I say vanilla, this is just like a, this is a seven power card with no effect printed on it. Or do you want to take a higher variance card? Like say the illusionist that has base five power, but also gets plus one power for each empty spot in your bench. So this leads to really interesting decisions towards the late game where it's sort of like, how much better is my deck than my potential opponent's deck? And should I take the risky option or the safe option? And when yeah. that I mean, goes poorly, is pretty safe, but I know what you're saying. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> when, you, uh, when, you, when you lose those games, it doesn't feel so bad because it was just a high variance game and you'll get them next time. And when you win them, you end up feeling really smart because you right. made a good judgment call. And I think that that's another thing that makes reward playing challengers online, especially on board game arena, pretty addictive. Totally. Okay. We're going to keep talking about decisions throughout the game, but I think we're going to pivot more now towards the strategy section of this game, just because we really adore the design. And there's a lot of interesting design decisions here that we want to highlight. I also, right. at can we title this section, beat your friends at this silly little party game? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> how to <laughs> how to have fun while trying harder than everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, at your friend's expense. Great. I do want to plug that I, early on in Challengers, when I was playing it on Board Game Arena, I wrote a baseline heuristics article that I called Eight Tips to Challenge the Competition in Challengers. And that's published on decisionspacepodcast.com. Uh, you can find it there if you want to look. There's sort of eight heuristics uh, that I think still hold up pretty well i'm going to read them out quickly stay open is the first one this is a drafting game just don't try to force decks it won't work out for you you have to play the deck you're dealt not the one you want to play and that's just how this type of game goes we already covered play your best seven sets uh but now i'm just like 
yeah, probably that's a good baseline heuristic, but also that decision is even more interesting. Cut and draft to increase the overall cumulative power of your deck. I think that's a fairly obvious one. Uh, sometimes you have to make cut decisions that sort of emotionally feel bad, but intellectually, when you sit back and think about it, or like, oh yeah, I just have to cut this card. It's bad. Because you want to um, keep your synergies, but sometimes those vanilla cards are just like stronger. Yeah, or stronger. Yeah, like a pair of fives is really strong. So even though you picked up a vendor too early, if yeah. the if the fun fair didn't come together, you have to say goodbye. Which ties into the next one. Plus ones and plus twos aren't are helpful until they're not. Uh, if the synergies don't come together, don't be addicted to them. So oh, do you want to you take the next few, Jake? Because I've been talking a lot. You won't always beat a worse deck, and you won't always lose the better decks. So I think that's just right talking about the variance in this game don't give up perhaps you know if yeah. it's like okay my deck's not coming together well you might just get lucky and win one and now you're right back in it take the flag as efficiently as possible when given a choice so this has to do with the resolution if you have a way to stack or order your deck it's best to always match your opponent's card holding the flag exactly a quick way to figure out if you're kind of ahead or behind in a match of challengers is to sort of count up like how much wasted power yep. that they've had so if if i'm holding on the flag with a five and my opponent flips a four into it and then another four they just wasted three powers because they went over by three that's a smile moment <laughs> yeah that's that feels really good yeah uh keep, i'll keep going so you want to build for late game that's pretty straightforward this is, and maybe it's not to everyone but i think when we're thinking about this game strategically the end goal is first place right we're not playing to get the most flags possible or fans possible and get second uh so you always want to be thinking like okay if i were to get to the championship which is going to lead me to like a deck that can actually win there and there's a lot of high variance cards especially that you can take early on that are really good because they lead to the potential that you have a super top end level deck and then lastly don't be afraid to pick from the lesser stack we've talked a lot about that already okay so the next thing i want to talk about because the brilliance of challengers is not just the systems we talked about before is not just how clean and approachable a lot of the card designs are it's not just how brilliant the tournament structure is it's also that the cards are designed in a really smart way the probabilities and the math around how many copies are in each of these decks hits it just right and also many of the cards in all these decks, I'm going to say have multimodal designs. So it means that you can take one card and plug it into two or three different strategic paths in a way that keeps allows you to make interesting decisions. So I just I wanted to talk set by set. Uh, Challengers has seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, six sets uh, in the base game, plus like a base city set that's always in the deck. Um, so I want to talk through some of the standout cards that are in them and maybe talk about that concept a little bit. Sounds good. Let's do it. But let's okay. not spend too long on them. Okay, we'll kind of fly. We'll kind of fly. Yeah. So the base city set, uh, my favorite cards in this set, uh, Jake, are mascot. Mascot's a card that just wants you to play lots of archetype, lots Here, of I'll cards. Just of play, I'll do this game. I'll tell you if the card is busted or not. Okay. So mascot busted. busted. Great. <laughs> so mascot just like enables you to play really flexibly and then you can get a pair of mascots and just be carried to the late game. And it enables really creative builds. So I love it. Reporter is another kind of notable card not for busted. me. No, but it's good. It keeps you open. <laughs> You're not committing to anything and it gives you lots of predictable efficiency, which is strong in this game. Uh, let's skip the modes. I think it's probably too much okay. for what's here. Um, Fun, f Jake, you take, let's switch off every single one. Okay, fun fair. So these are the yellow cards. So the first one we have is Vendor, Brendan. Busted. 
absolutely busted. Uh, yeah, so that one enables the yellow strategy. It's basically like the yellow lord. So if this card's on your bench, it gives plus one to all yellow cards that you have out. And then, of course, this can stack like all other challenger cards. So having three vendors on your bench means that any other yellow cards you manage to flip out of your deck gets plus three power to it, which is nuts. Okay, Juggler is next. Busted. No, it's not busted. Yeah, it's a no, really, this card's so good. It's a it's good... A. Okay. It's a good utility card. It allows yeah. you to look at the top three cards and re- reorder them. It only has two power. Um, that's really helpful for efficiently taking the flag. And it also works really well with uh, the vendor strategy because it's a yellow card. And a card we'll be talking about just in a second, AI that powers up all two cards. And you can kind of all two power cards. And you can kind of combine AI and vendor together into like a kind of a hodgepodge of yellow and two power stuff. And Juggler is like a key card in, in that. that particular deck. Another key card in Funfair is Clairvoyant. Clairvoyant just... Not when busted. It lo- no, but it's very good. It allows you... So Funfair is interesting, right? Because it works on... I'm just going to get lots of Funfair cards, the yellow cards, uh, get some vendors and we'll be good to go all throughout the game. Or it works on... I'm going to get a pair of Jugglers or a pair of Clairvoyants. And I can probably ride those cards in the late game just because they have high utility and they're going to make any deck that I end up in work really well. Yeah. So those are the kind of like two modes of Funfair. Yeah, Clairvoyant's an insane utility card. It works well with so a ton good. of other other things. Um, like certain cards you want to make sure they hold the flag and uh clairvoyant's really good at at helping you get your math just perfectly right so that those cards are able to do that and then uh activate their powerful effect also it's so good you have to worry people will steal it from you so it's pretty good it's good i mean yeah but people People just like people just like yellows in general anyway outer space these are the red cards ai busted okay so ai is a two power card that says uh whenever you play a two power card it gets plus one but in challengers bonuses and synergies stack so your first ai is a two power card your second ai as long as it doesn't come out at the exact same time is a three power card told the people this did you okay i just said the stacking with yeah Yeah, yeah, you're right you're right you're giving more detail ai is so good in this game because it synergizes with so many other cards there's just a lot of two power strategies that you can build so ai works in almost any deck in the game so i think it's the strongest card you could take in pack one and i think the designers do too it's a rare there's only three copies it's a it's very good it's really good yeah it it seems like in the a deck you're right like a lot of the key cards that the main strategic strategies are built around are two power so vendor stable them, like hermit yeah, yeah movie star film star type of yeah, stuff yeah good. all good the ne- next one ufo busted <laughs> Okay, so UFO is this really cool card that comes in deck B that allows you to add two cards from deck A without looking at them to the bottom of your deck. So this is the only card, one of the only cards in the game that allow you to draft more cards and see more cards and potentially get more duplicates. So if you get one of these early or if the challenger's gods look upon you gracefully, a pair of these early, you can pull together some really disgusting sets of cards that can just overwhelm the opponents. It makes for really fun games too. Yeah, I totally agree. It's... I mean, just uh, it's a really fun card to have in your deck, too, because it's fun to see like what you got added. You know, it's like you're playing the lottery every time. It's just a really fun card. And it's super good because just anytime you're adding a pair to your deck, 
your deck just gets so much better, right? It's not like just that one card better. It's like a cumulative effect like we've been yep. talking about. So the fact that UFO can passively add pairs of potentially powerful cards is insanely strong. Like hitting once or twice can just put you so far ahead. Yeah, if you're playing Stable Boys, which is a card we'll talk about later, and you hit more Stable Boys, it's just very, very good. But yeah. also, Jake, one brilliant design decision that I want to talk to you about really quickly that I think is so smart that UFO is in the Outer Space deck is that it the cards that it could pick up in terms of outer space synergy of uh, are less likely to appear. So AI gets drafted a lot and there's only three copies. And Shapeshifter is another A-level red card that UFI, UFO could potentially hit. But a lot of people are likely to take Shapeshifters because you can just replace a talent with your Shapeshifter. So it's unlikely if you go UFO, you're going to really boost your other outer space cards, which might make the band strategy. Band is a card that you can get in the B deck in outer space that says all your outer space cards are stronger. Uh, it, without those sort of little nuances, that strategy might be too strong. So I think that's just brilliant and a really smart little design decision that shows that this game went through strong development. Yeah, I like it. I like Skeleton plus UFO because it increases your chance of hitting, even though Skeleton's a pretty bad card on its own. There's eight of them. Yeah. yeah. So it can. there's a really decent likelihood of hitting uh, some extra ones. So we'll move on to Film Studio, the green set. The first card we have listed here is Makeup Artist. It's fine. It's high variance i like this card but like i don't like playing the deck because it's too high variance for my taste yeah i don't i think you're right i really want to say that this card's busted because perhaps the most busted deck you can possibly get is a, a deck that has like three or four of these guys in it it's so have, good have you played against four makeup artists yeah it's disgusting it's insane they flip over a newcomer and like you're playing like round three and they've like hitting you with like a nine power <laughs> newcomer it's like what is happening but it's high variance. I don't think we said what it does. Makeup Artist makes it so that the base cards in your set, uh, you have three copies of them called Newcomers, get plus two, but also makes it so that all ones get plus two. And there's lots of other good one value cards in the base set, in the deck A. So it's a card that you can build around if you get a few copies early. You, you usually want movie stars with this, which let you put your newcomers back on top of your deck. It's a nice little archetype. Uh, director slash cowboy. These are good workhorse cards. I think Film Studio is interesting because they tend to have decks that have really high variance potential, but aren't decks I want to be in. I will accept playing them when I am dealt them. Uh, I disagree. I think Cowboys is absolutely busted. <laughs> I do want to say what they do. Uh, Cowboys, a three power card. And when it wins the flag, uh, the top card of your opponent's deck goes into their discard pile. So it's like one of the highest variance cards, um, but it, it enables your deck having just one of these or two of these deck enables your deck to beat far superior decks uh, by yeah. getting a little bit lucky. If things aren't going together for me in deck a i will and the film studio set is in the game that's one of the cards i'm looking for it's like okay i don't have anything going for me and i so i'll take one b card it's like ufo and cowboy are the first two cards that i want because yeah. i think yeah if you get three cowboys in your deck you could just win on that alone yeah so director is another sort of combo card to that because director makes your film studio cards your green cards attack for plus one so they go really nicely together it's fun to play this deck. I really like it with Clairvoyant too. There's mm, some really yeah. good synergy yep. there. Okay, the next set is Haunted House. These are the oranges. The standout card, I think the best card in this this entire set is called Teenager. Teenager gets plus one for every Haunted House card already on your bench. Uh, 
And the reason it's so good is because there's another card called Necromancer that lets you put it back on top of your deck. So that's one of the sort of archetypes that you're going to play with this. There's also... Oh, is it busted, Jake? No. Mm-mm. No, no. this is... This is... Okay. This is definitely not busted. I started on this strategy feeling really down on it. I refused to play refused to play Haunted House, but then I realized no one was picking up skeletons so I could get lots of copies early. Like if I'm going into picking deck from deck B with four skeletons, I feel awesome. And then Teenager's just great. She's awesome. She's fine. The problem with Teenager is that she's basically vendor in reverse, but it's a B card instead of an A card, right? It's kind of powering up the same amount of power, but you have to use it a B slot to get it. Yep. And it need and it's really good with Necromancer, but the problem with that is Necromancer is absolutely busted. <laughs> so everybody's Everyone taking Necromancer. It. So it's really hard to get the Necromancer specifically with teenagers because if I'm in Stable Boy, I super want it. If I we didn't talk as much about mascot, which is another really strong card. Uh there's just like we said, there's just a lot of really powerful two power cards. So Necromancer goes into almost anything, so it's hard to like bank on getting them with your teenager especially if you're likely to have a hand that has both of them in him in it the next card that is worth noting in haunted house is a card called butler or a card called vacuum cleaner both these cards have sweeping effects so they clean off your bench they allow more cards to come out i find these are not cards i want they stand out they're notable i had to mention them here play them if i get them this is another high variant strategy i prefer not to play these decks if i can help it but when these decks fire they can be incredible yeah i think i feel like i'm always losing to these decks but i just but don't you never win with them yeah i don't yeah, understand exactly. like the big deck strategy like i just don't understand how to build it like when i should be going into it vacuum cleaner is a little more straightforward sometimes it's like you can just add that and feel pretty safe but yeah i don't know when wait when anyone when you hear someone about a strategy say i always lose to it but i struggle to win with it that's a great sign that it's a high variance strategy right <laughs> yeah that's a clear tell and if you're ever playtesting a game and you get that feedback that's something that's important to consider too uh if you hear that okay the next set is called shipwreck it is a purple deck let's talk about shipwreck jake yeah this is shipwreck. a weird set it's a weird set because it feels more like a Utility. facilitator set, right? Yep. Like there's some cards that are fine in other stuff, but there's unlike all the other ones, there's no like purple enhancing card. There's no card that just enhances all your other purples. So yep. there there isn't like I'm all purple deck that really makes sense in the same way that you can have just like insanely all orange green yellow red decks but with that said there are some really strong cards so one of them is called sailor sailor is a deck a card that lets we already talked about it you look at your whole deck you pick one and you put it on the bottom even just one copy of sailor can ensure you have a very strong early game because it allows you to play a seven card unique deck for longer and it gives you just a lot of efficiency in terms of sequencing i'm very partial to this card i think it's strong it's not my favorite and it's not super strong in multiples like a lot of cards in challengers so it's a little tricky to play but i think it's quite good yeah i agree with you i think sailor is a card where it's like uh, when i have one i'm happy with it but then sometimes i go fall back on the heuristic where i just start taking two and 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 then i'm like wait i don't know if i even need two of this card 
Yep. So it doesn't really Agreed. like have a beneficial stack in the same way. What about submarine? Submarine is a polarizing one in our Discord brain trust, I think. It started out that people were really high on it, and then I think people started slamming it. Uh, and then it's definitely a card that I think you need specific circumstances to make sense in your deck. Because if you're just adding it into a deck that's already really good, chances are... The way it works is when it comes into play, you uh, remove the bottom card of your deck from the game. And if if it removes a five power card, then all of a sudden your nine power thing became a four power. But it goes really well with Sailor because the Sailor puts the submarine on the bottom. So if submarine's your last card, it can't eat anything. It's quite strong. Uh, so, so Shipwreck is weird. And we have one set left to discuss, which is Castle, the blue set. And we'll start off with Stable Boy as one of the key cards. Okay, so Stable Boy is a is a very powerful card if the deck comes together. Jake, is it busted? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, Stable Boy is just good. But Stable Boy is an interesting build because it reco- it wants lots of three value cards that are vanilla. So meaning they don't have another effect. So if this one comes together, the high level, the high is quite high, but it can struggle to play in the late game if you really commit to it. I think it makes for lots of interesting decisions, but I tend not to play Stable Boy unless I feel forced into it. Brennan, what if I told you all of the best B cards were three power? Necromancer, ha- Cowboys, and UFO. It would definitely help some, but it might not be the whole kit and caboodle. All right. Uh, And then we have Blacksmith. Blacksmith is another really cool card. It's a B card. It powers up all of your base level cards, which are, are called the city set. Those are your starter deck cards are all city. So this powers up those. And one of the interesting things about the city set card is you can find duplicates of those two in the set. Talent comes in deck A, Dog comes in deck B. B and champion comes in deck C. So it can create a really powerful synergy. I think I like drafting pairs so much that I'm like doing it too often with the city cards. And like, I mean, how are you going to pass up on dog when it makes a set? And then I find that blacksmith doesn't, isn't always where you want to be at. And here's why those city cards don't synergize with themselves. They're all vanilla cards. So a deck that really leans in heavily on blacksmith is super reliant on blacksmith coming out early. And if it doesn't, you're just dead. Yeah, I agree. When this deck really pops off, it can be very good. But you really have to draw into a line where it's clear that this is the deck you're supposed to be in and then to really run towards it. It should not be one that you're kind of angling for. Yeah, the basic cards are the ones you want to be cutting first too. So it's difficult to like figure out early enough that like I'm going for this because it's relying on a specific card that you're not getting until round third at three at the very earliest. And even then, if you're just having a bunch of basic cards and one blacksmith, you're probably getting your butt kicked there. So it's kind of like a late game build. And it's just putting all of your eggs in one basket. With that said, though, it does work well with Reporter, that other base set card that I said was neat that Jake said he didn't like because it lets you search for your blacksmiths. So that's pretty good. The castle's another interesting one, kind of like Shipwreck, where there's no one card that boosts all the other castles. So it's really about how can you make these are supporting cards that are typically strong in pairs or more there's a nice sorcerer card that gives you some sweeping knights yeah. can be a good comeback card those are, are cards that fit well in any 
deck because they're just always going to be solid regardless of the synergy you're going for. I think this set and Shipwreck goes to show that they were really thoughtful in trying to create a decision space for drafting that meant that you'd have a high variance in the types of decks you're drafting. So if you didn't have sets like uh, the Shipwreck set or the Castle set, you'd almost always be going for those high, like those highly synergistic builds where you're just trying to get the same sets of cards. And that's way less interesting than having to make decisions where you're building cards from this set and this set and that set. And it gives you a higher sense of variety. It and, and since you're playing with all but one set each time, you're always going to have at least one of these sets. And it's interesting, like when you play a game that doesn't have the uh, fun fair or doesn't have outer space or doesn't have film studio, you really feel that absence. Right. So yeah. like, oh, wow, all these decks are gone. But with when you're playing without Shipwreck or without Castle, it's kind of like you might almost like not notice it. And then you're like, wait, crap, like. Oh no, like where's my blacksmith? <laughs> my point five is actually for the fact that I wish there was just one more set be- uh, of these types of uh, decks in the base box because I think it would mean that you would have even more variance in a way that was like infinitely replayable. Yeah, fair enough. I I'm think being, I'm being I think this is, is yeah, well, I mean, it takes a lot to get to a 10, uh, yeah. but I think this is quite playable. And we already know Challengers 2 is coming out like this year. Yeah. So, yeah, the, so- the, uh, the first time I played this game, I was like, oh, yeah, this is like infinitely expandable. Yeah, I believe in challengers. So I'm being I'm being hopeful with my 9.5 because I yeah. think there is room for improvement, but it's an incredible game. Yeah. So lastly, we we didn't we're talking about all A and B cards so far because those are the ones you're kind of building decks around anything that really stands out in deck C. I guess I'll call out one specific card for me. There's a card called Villain, which is notable that it's the only base 10 power card in the game, but it has a really drastic drawback which is that you have to put an a random a card on top of your deck but because of what we were talking about before where you want to try and like efficiently kill something to take the flag villain poses a real problem where it's hard to get up to 10 and it's always going to take one more than one card unless you have villain yourself so you're not going to be able to kill it typically super efficiently and a lot of these really the strongest decks in the game with vendor and ai that requires like having these cards in your discard pile first so if somebody starts villain and you run into it with like vendor vendor (laughs) ai talent uh something else like you've given up so much power because it all had to be spent at once to beat that card so it's like a really cool card that sometimes you could just pivot into if you just throw away everything to just grab two villains and play like four uniques and all of a sudden you're in a totally different deck and you're just smacking somebody. I will say when I'm playing skeletons, I like to look for a villain if I only have four of them and I know that not many other ones are out there just because sometimes you can get really lucky and hit something that (laughs) That you already have and it just feels amazing. That is a moonshot for sure. Yeah, totally, but it feels great. I think for me, the big thing with deck C is just pairs are incredible. If you can pull together a a pair of deck C cards, almost any of them fit in any deck. Uh, And then there's some fun decisions ones. We uh, decisions around other ones in singles. Like we talked about Prince. That's one where on flag loss, it just goes straight to your exhaust pile. So that's it works in almost any deck, but can make for tough deck building decisions. I really like bumper car, which is just juggler, but six power. Uh, he, I find that having the added efficiency leads to lower variance. And in general, when I'm trying to win over and over and over, I want lower variance, uh, powerful cards. And Brendan, to close out here, I guess before we do our closing thoughts, do you have any yeah. favorite decks, things that you just, when, when I mean, it comes together, you're extra happy? Teenagers with a bunch of necromancers, when the, when the haunted house deck 
and then you've just slipped into vampires, which let you make it a zany combo that kind of loops. That's for me the most fun deck. If you just get to play a stack of oranges and they it all came together, it's just so fun and very hard to beat. How about you, Jake? Yeah, I think my favorite decks are probably the AI based decks because yeah. they're just so insanely so strong. strong a lot of yeah. time. I like to win, um, but I think particularly if I compare two AIs with two vendors, or sometimes I'll, if I see an AI and a vendor in my starting hand, I just take them both without even redrawing yep. to try and find the double because I find that those two decks just pair together so well and it helps keep your option open about am i gonna if i if the vendors come up i'll go that way if the ais come up i'll go the other way uh so i I, that's i love being there and it's fun and then if juggler comes out juggler works with ai it works with vendor it also lets you draw ai or vendor earlier it's just so good yep so i think all in all that's a really great place to leave it i'm very excited for challengers 2 it'll be really interesting to see what kind of games challengers uh, inspires and i i think i encourage you challengers is very easy to learn if you have access to board game arena and you're interested in playing i really encourage you to give it a whirl even more so than some of the other games we've covered on the show just because i think there's a lot to learn and you'll learn a lot from playing one game of challengers about uh its sort of design ethos yeah i'll I'll kind of conclude by saying i totally agree that typically we play most of our plays asynchronous for the show and challengers is a big exception to that almost all of my plays have been live on bga and the game just loses so much energy played asynchronously that that's like one of the few games i would say like don't bother i mean it's fine but it's just so much better live and you can play this game live in 20 minutes on bga which is great it's probably you know closer to an hour in person but yeah so being able to get that game in a whole game with like eight people in in 20 minutes is just a ton of fun yeah if you are still here i'm just going to remind you one more time thank you so much for listening to the episode we hope and know you enjoyed it leave us a review if not until next time you can find more Uh, decision space by checking out the link in our show notes you'll find our discord there come discuss this episode with us tell us your thoughts on challengers or any of the other games we've played we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any of the other ones you've been checking out you can also find more things decision space on decisionspacepodcast.com or check us out on board game geek at and just google decision space podcast board game geek and you'll find our blog there leave us a comment if you have thoughts on challengers or anything else that you want to pick our brains about or leave us feedback on we'd love it uh and until next time thank you so much for listening oh jake who do you have to thank for our intro and outro song oh we should thank hembry for their song reach out which we use as the intro and outro for this podcast thanks everyone for listening and we'll catch you next week bye bye, bye. Oh,